Jonah chapter 3, page 921. We're going to look at the entirety of the chapter this morning, continuing in our series on Jonah, this man of God, a prophet, called by the Lord to bring a message of repentance to Nineveh, technically a message of judgment leading to repentance upon Nineveh. Um, But he was a man who shirked his calling, experienced the consequences of such, and was himself brought to a very low enough place to realize why he was where he was, and so was reassigned by the Lord to continue his work, which is where we find ourselves here this morning in chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at the gift of repentance, which is the ultimate message that is brought forth by God to Nineveh. Hear now the word of the Lord in Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, your word tells us that you have spoken in various times and in various places to your people. But in these last days, you have chosen to speak to us through your son, the incarnate word. We pray that you will open the mouth of your servant here this morning to proclaim that word in uh, the power of the spirit. We pray that this same Spirit will open the hearts and the the ears of those assembled here this morning to receive your gospel, and uh, that it would be written on their hearts. All of this, gracious Father, we seek and ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. If you were asked by someone what differentiates Christianity from all other religions, what would you say? If uh, someone asks you what differentiates Christianity from all other religions, what would come to mind? What makes Christianity unique among all of the other religions of the world? To some, it's probably a simple way of of seeing it as kind of a cop-out to say that Christianity is just kind of one more evolved perspective on the world and how it functions one more religion with its deity that we bow down to, or, or one more manifestation 
of some kind of spirituality that recognizes that there is uh, one supreme being out there and we're just one uh, religion that eventually joins with all others worshiping the same thing. Uh, No, there is an answer to this question. And while there is a multiplicity of reasons for why Christianity is different from all other world religions, one that I would like to share with you is this. Every other religion teaches that you must earn your way to God. Other religions have a framework or some kind of a works-based system in place that is meant to uh, appease their god or gods, where it's simply just a list of things to do or not to do, and based on how well you did, that will determine your place in the eyes of the gods or lowercase g, God. Think of the variety of idol worshiping and temple visiting and incense burning that goes on in the domains of Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and so on. The, the strain and the energy uh, put into pacifying their gods or God to the best of their ability. Every other religion teaches that you must earn your way to God. Christianity, on the other hand, teaches that God comes to us. In theology, we use the word condescension, meaning that God brings himself down to our level to reveal himself and his grace-filled word that leads to salvation. And that's ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, as Philippians tells us, uh, as incarnate man, and in his humiliation, dying on the cross, where our sins were imputed to him and his righteousness then imputed to us. That is, we brought nothing to God except our sin, which was placed on another when we were the ones deserving punishment for us. This is the beauty of Christianity. There is nothing we can do to appease the Lord's wrath in order to receive his favor. Because the appeasing of the Lord has taken place already on the cross. Other religions, mankind does all it can to get to God for salvation. Christianity, God comes to us and saves us when we could never save ourselves. Well, where am I going with all of this? Well, in the atonement of Jesus on the cross for the salvation of his people... In the context of then of the salvation of his people, there is granted to them certain things. And we call them the gifts of faith and repentance. Our focus this morning, of course, is going to be on the second of these, as we see it in our text of Jonah chapter 3, that being repentance. Even though it is important to remember that we cannot express true faith Without genuine repentance, John Calvin said repentance not only constantly follows faith, but is also born of faith. So we can't really separate the two as that which is on display in our salvation, but I do want to focus on repentance this morning. It is so crucial and important uh, in our day and age specifically, uh, where sin is excused, where Uh, evil is called good and good is called evil, that we as a church really understand 
what is at stake if we do away with the doctrine of repentance. Repentance is not just a one-time thing you do when you get saved and go on living your life. It's not just a change in your belief system as if, oh, now I believe in God, that means I must have repented too. No, repentance is a crucial marker in the life of a Christian, in the lives of God's people. In other words, repentance is ongoing and life-changing in the Christian life. Repentance is both a command, we see that uh, replete throughout Scripture, but repentance is also a gift. It is granted to us. The Westminster Larger Catechism in question 76 says that repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God. It goes on to cite 2 Timothy 2.25 where Paul writes that God may grant to some repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And Acts 11.18 where it said that to the Gentiles uh, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Just as our righteousness is foreign to us, it's nothing of our own, so too is repentance to our fallen state. But when we are changed and our minds are renewed by the Spirit of God in our salvation, we are gifted with the ability to repent of sin. That's really the core theme I want to look at this morning. Man is fallen and on their own cannot turn to God to save themselves. And since man cannot turn from sin on their own, in saving us, God grants to us this gift of repentance. Two things about repentance that I want to look at that we'll see through Jonah chapter 3 are this. Repentance comes by means of the word, God's word. And repentance is also displayed. We'll see what that looks like in a moment. So first, we see that repentance comes by the means of God's word. I've talked about uh, the means of grace before. The preaching of the word of God is one of those means. And the one bringing this message, the preacher of God's word, is our man Jonah. Already, even in his life, we see uh, repentance at work in some measure, working itself out already in the first three verses. If you look at uh, verse 1 there in chapter 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. He arose a second time beforehand. He arose and he went down away from the presence of the Lord. This time is much different. As we'll see later, repentance is a turning away from sin and reorienting your life in a whole new direction. Jonah himself is granted a second chance to bring God's word. And this time he responds to the Lord's renewed commission. Almost immediately, he was called to arise. And he went down away from the presence of the Lord before. Now he is called to arise once more. And this time he actually goes where he is called. And this word that he carries from the Lord is brought to Nineveh, which was, as verse 3 tells us, an exceedingly great city. Now, if you look carefully in the Bibles you have before you, if you have the, uh, the English Standard Version trans, uh, translation there, 
Uh, they did add a footnote, and perhaps other translations too, I'm not, I'm not too familiar. But in that footnote next to that sentence, uh, which highlights that this verse could also be translated as a great city to God. That's interesting. Great to God in what way, though? Is, is Nineveh just from God's perspective a very large city, physically speaking? Well, we can get some further insight into this by taking a look at what comes next, continuing in verse 3. Nineveh was a, a three days journey in breadth, or a, a visit was a three days journey. In other words, what made Nineveh great wasn't necessarily its physical dimensions and how long it would take a traveler to journey across the, the diameter or circumference of the city, but it's more or less referring to the importance of Nineveh in this context and how long it would take to make it worth your time to visit this city. Think of when you're planning a trip to a, an exotic destination, let's say, and you want to make it worth your time, so you plot out a certain length of time that you want to spend there. It's of great importance to you to take in all you can when you visit a place like that. One commentator said, in comparison to most little villages and towns in the ancient world where you could see everything important in an hour or two, Nineveh was huge. This naturally implied it had many people within it, which explains why it was a great city to God. That is, it is important to him. Many lives are at stake. And Jonah is there for a day among the people until he preached. And what did Jonah preach? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Probably the shortest sermon ever preached. Can you imagine your preacher preaching a sermon that short? No, don't bet on it. <laughs> Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Overthrown is the, the same verb that's used for God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we really see the seriousness of both God's word of judgment and the seriousness of the sinful lifestyle that the Ninevites were partaking in. This is a message of divine judgment and justice, but it has an implied condition of repentance. You'll notice if you read that verse again that Jonah didn't directly call Nineveh to repent using, say, for example, the exact words that John the Baptist uh, did throughout his ministry. But Jonah indirectly is calling Nineveh to repent through this preached word. Normally when a prophet of the Old Testament called out against a nation uh, and would speak judgment against them, it's usually implied that judgment will take place unless repentance takes place. We see that prophetic framework at work in Jeremiah 18, uh, where God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. In other words, Jonah's preached word is an invitation for Nineveh to repent. And yet, wow, 40 days, like a month and a bit. Nineveh had 40 days to repent. 
a sign of God's forbearance and mercy. And we can for sure think of this, this past year and what has taken place with the health crisis and those who have had student loans put in forbearance. Um, you know, it feels good at the moment that your student loans are put on hold for a little bit. Uh, but yet there is a reckoning on the horizon. Dues will have to be paid. And for Nineveh, there is still a reckoning on the horizon if repentance is not made. You see what happens when the word of the Lord is proclaimed amongst mankind. It drives our eyes to uh, not the things of this world, to the temporary things that will fall and dissipate, the temporary things that we may desire to cling to. But as Colin Smith writes, God's word always engages people with eternal issues. It lifts our horizons from the immediate interests of our lives to the imminent and overwhelming reality of either everlasting destruction or eternal life. In the proclamation of the Word of God, it should shift our focus in, by the work of the Spirit in us, moving through the preaching of the Word, we should always be affirming our rest in the arms of the Savior, expressing our faith in the Savior, and acknowledging our sin and shortcomings to the Savior, resulting in repentance. For anyone who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that the preaching of the word proclaimed faithfully by one of God's ordained servants would open your ears to hear, even as if it was Jonah himself here today, saying something like, however you're living your life right now, know this, you will one day stand before God. In every second of your life, that day is one day closer. God doesn't leave us in the dark. Faithful preaching, studying of the word, is the means by which God draws men unto himself, bringing them to faith and repentance. In his mercy, God sends preachers like Jonah to call sinners to repentance and faith so that they may be saved. Paul tells us in Romans, he says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And this is a word that does not return void to the Lord, but accomplishes that for which it was sent to call sinners to faith repentance, and eternal joy in Jesus Christ. Repentance comes by means of this word. Be encouraged by that word, both as you uh, sit under the preaching of, of faithful servants of the Lord, and even as you study it yourself, 
May it stir unto you the, the renewing of your mind and trust that that spirit will work mightily through that. But the second part of repentance that I want to look at this morning is that repentance is displayed. I think what's going to help us gain a good understanding of what goes on here in repentance is the wording of one of our confessions. I'm going to read to you Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 33. Question and answer is 88 through 90. It goes as follows. The question, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things. The dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. Question 89. What is the dying away of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. And then question 90. What is the rising to life of the new self? Wholehearted joy in God through Christ and the love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. I think through these questions and answers, we can see, uh, use it as a kind of a framework to see what's going on here in Jonah 3. First of all, we know that genuine repentance involves the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. And, and we know that there are multiple passages in Scripture that testify to this new life of a Christian in Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. But where do we see the dying away of the old self in the lives of these Ninevites? They're the focus of the passage now as the recipients of God's grace as he grants to them the gift of repentance. What does this look like in them? Well, first of all, simply put, look at verse 5. The people of Nineveh did what? They believed God, putting their faith and trust in him. Notice that this comes after Jonah's shortest sermon ever. But look at where their acknowledgement lies. They didn't believe Jonah, but in response they believed God through the proclamation of his word. This text is what you could call theocentric. It is God-centered. Man is not centered here. In genuine repentance, mankind fades in the background. God is brought to the foreground as the Holy One worthy of attention here. And also in our text this morning, any diligent student of Hebrew, the language of Hebrew would recognize as well that in the, the text's original language here, the word believed is the first word in the sentence structure. Even, even in the inscripturated word of God, uh, we see this accentuated here, the immediacy of Nineveh's repentance upon hearing this word. The dying of the old self continues as they exhibit genuine sorrow for their sin, also, verse 5, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And uh, in thinking of repentance, we, we understand that fasting was a way to humble yourself before the Lord uh, and devote time to, to confessing your sin before him. And the putting on of sackcloth, which was a very uh, coarse, rough fabric, exhibited the sign of mourning similar to how today at funerals you see a lot of people dressing up in black, symbolizing the sorrow for the occasion. 
In other words, for the Ninevites to call for a fast and put on sackcloth is them admitting to Yahweh, the God of Israel, their grievances over their sin. And they put it on display. Furthermore, the Ninevites exhibit what we call godly grief, not worldly grief. There is a difference between the two. It's very important for us to understand that. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, Paul writes that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief can be defined as a kind of a grief that comes from the world, a remorse brought about by losing the world's approval. Your status in the eyes of the world leads to a resolve to regain that approval. Nineveh's grief here wasn't spawned by their worldly status. They had everything they could possibly ask for. They were, after all, a great city. They exhibited godly grief, godly sorrow, The king of Nineveh himself, verse 6 says, arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. One person wrote that the king's response is as immediate and spontaneous as that of his subjects. Royal authority gives way to penitent humility. He exchanges his robes for sackcloth and his throne for a bed of ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Now you might be wondering why the king would issue this decree, uh, such as this, when his subjects have already done this work beforehand in the previous verses. It's very interesting in my study of this passage, multiple, if not most, uh, theologians would agree that the king's proclamation in our text is in topical order, not chronological order, highlighting the immediacy of the citizens of Nineveh's response to Jonah's preaching, not the king's command. Catechism tells us that the dying away of the old self involves the more and more hating of sin and running away from it. The king of Nineveh decrees that the populace turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Violence, no doubt, was a key marker and characteristic of the Assyrian Empire at this time. In other words, the king realizes that that with the outward signs of repentance, uh, fasting and putting on of sackcloth, there must be a correspondent action, morally speaking. That is, the turning away from the evil they committed, which was the violence that was in their hands. If we don't treat repentance seriously, we may find that we put on uh, an, an outward sign of repentance. We may have a verbal communication to the Lord, I repent, putting on of sackcloth and fasting, so to speak, but discover that it's rendered absolutely useless if it's not accompanied by a change of life. 
That's ultimately the import of what repentance is. It is a turning away from sin and walking in an entirely new direction away from your sin. The active putting to death of the old self. And then through this repentance of the Ninevites, hope is then expressed. Look at verse 9. The king even asks a question. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And in an incredible act of sheer grace and mercy, God relents of judgment, thereby paving the way for the rising to life of the new self. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What's the ultimate import of all this for us here and now, though? It's important for us to see here that the Ninevites were changed. How do we know? Because Jesus said so. The scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign. And in Matthew 12, 39 through 41, he responds saying, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. Christ here warns us of the greater condemnation of those who do not repent at the teaching of this one who is greater than Jonah. Jesus is the greater Jonah here. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights. He was spat out, and then he called a nation to repentance. Jesus uh, in Luke 24, 46, it says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. When you sin, do you repent? Do you repent daily? The dying of the old self, after all, should be a daily occurrence, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. If you confess Christ this morning as Lord and Savior, not a day of your existence as a believer should go by without this taking place. Is your repentance worldly or is it godly? Do you fear losing favor with the world or your family, your spouse, your children in worldly grief? Or do you confess your sins in repentance to God in godly grief over your sin? Repentance can be one of those things that we struggle with both uh, theologically and internally in our lives. 
Do you struggle at all, even, even just coming to the Lord in repentance? Please know this. If you come to the Lord with genuine sorrow over your sins, over your failings, your flunks, your sloppiness as a Christian, if we're all going to be honest with ourselves, that happens far often too much. Know that he will extend forgiveness to you. The king of Nineveh, he questioned it. Who knows? As may we. But God saw what they did, and he relented of judgment. In fact, God desires you to come to him. God is patient, as Scripture tells us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Christ himself, yes, he did not shy from preaching judgment. But at the same time, with his loving heart, he calls sinners to himself. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, he says. You might ask, how could God continue to love me when I've been failing constantly in my besetting sins and failing over and over and over again? How could I have done this one more time? How could he take me back into his loving arms? Surely he is done with me. Surely he's a ticking time bomb with me, and I'm afraid he's just ready to blow. God isn't some crotchety old man ready to just kick you out of the house. He is the loving father who takes back the prodigal son. This is where the perseverance of the heart of Christ for his people truly becomes a reality for us. Dane Orland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, he writes this, We cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Nothing but coming to him is required. First at conversion and a thousand times thereafter until we are with him upon death. His death and resurrection make it just for Christ never to cast out his own, no matter how often they fall. So, when you sin, and you will sin, grieve over it, hate it, but do so coming to Jesus, not to the world. If you found yourself here this morning and have never confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, 
Come to him in repentance and faith. Gifts that have been freely given to you. Scripture tells us that the Lord will give you a new heart. This is the promise of the gospel. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And for those of you who do claim the name of Christ, the Spirit uh, works in you as, as you're being sanctified in this life, and occasionally we find ourselves falling prey to sin and not walking in the statutes of the Lord. That's when we know that we can come to Christ in our sin and be immersed in him who is grace. Grace is a person. Grace brought to us by the giving of his word leading to repentance, a repentance put on display by a changing life, a life that we can acknowledge along with the Apostle Paul has been one crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Amen. Let's pray. O merciful God, we see, we know, because your word testifies to this, that you have condescended to us to speak to us through your word. Grant to us all the grace that We need not to be hearers of this word only, but doers of it as well. Give us the grace of your Holy Spirit that we may believe what has been proclaimed. May we bring glory and honor to your name in all that we do as you continue to sanctify us by your Spirit and conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.